You think you're rusty. I haven't stood out the front and done a Bible reading this decade. <laughs> Pretty sad, isn't it? Anyway, we're, today we're reading Acts 8. We're reading the entire chapter starting at verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralysed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practised magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of the of God and is called great and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ they were baptized both men and women even Simon himself believed and after being baptized he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given, through the laying on, on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this manner, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the... Sorry... <coughs> I knew I'd get tongue-tied somewhere. Um, I'm trying to say Sumerians, but you know, it's coming out wrong. But anyway. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, 
and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading to the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And then when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Hello. There you go. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. And uh, good morning, everyone. It's uh, so good to be with you again this morning. I'm so glad that uh, I can join you. Uh, I'm not, not here every week, I know, but it is good to uh, get down here uh, reg more regularly now, which is fantastic. Um, and if you're here for the first time or you're visiting, let me just add uh, my welcome to Andrews. It's great that you're with us this morning. We're going to look through this passage of Acts 8. We've been working through the book of Acts. Uh, over the last few weeks together, and we're going to continue to do that for a few more weeks yet. Uh, but after this morning's talk, I'm going to stick around for a little bit, and we're going to have a Q&A. So if you've got any particular questions that you want to ask from this morning's passage, uh, I'll, I'll speak, I'll pray, and then there'll be a chance to kind of ask any questions that you might have this morning. But let's pray now and ask God to help us as we um, spend some time in this passage together. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are a loving and a good God. Thank you that uh, you... Uh, have sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world that we might know you, the only true God. And Lord God, thank you that through Jesus Christ we have our sins forgiven. And so as we come to your word this morning, Father, help us to listen and hear all that you say to us through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Is there anywhere, do you think, that the gospel can't reach? Uh, is there anyone that the gospel can't transform, do you think? I mean, are there any barriers where the gospel can't break through? I mean, the gospel, when I use that word, uh, which I'm sure you all know, is the life-changing news that Jesus Christ is uh, Lord of heaven and earth and that he is the saviour of all who come to him. Uh, I've told this story many times before personally, but I thought it was relevant today. But uh, this little conversation that I'm going to share with you happened uh, probably about 12 or 14 years ago now, so a little while ago. Uh, but I was speaking with a lady after church one Sunday morning, and I knew that she'd been praying for and trying to share the gospel with her non-believing sister and her husband. And so I asked her how it was going. 
had there been any opportunities to share Christ. And I was a little bit startled because she said to me, I've given up on them. I've been praying for them for five years. Uh, they just don't want to listen. Uh, they're a lost cause. I'm not trying anymore. Now, I remember that conversation because of another conversation that I had on uh, that exact same day in the afternoon with my father because he rang me. He was quite excited, and if I remember it properly, there was probably tears of joy because his brother had just rung him that morning and said that he had given his life to the Lord Jesus. And what struck me immediately is that my dad had been praying for his brother since he kind of walked away from God when he was around about 18 years of age. And on this day that he rang to tell me that his, dad had, that his brother had accepted Jesus, my uncle, he was 80 years old. For over 60 years, my dad had prayed for and shared the gospel with his brother. Wasn't he glad that he didn't give up? If there's, is there anyone that the gospel can't transform? Are there any barriers where the gospel can't break through? And they're good questions, aren't they? And today's passage actually answers those questions, I think, emphatically. Uh, we're going to see three things. That is that, the, that God's gospel can't be stopped. We saw that in the kids' talk, didn't we? Uh, that God cannot be used. And also, thirdly, that God's gospel can overcome every barrier. Uh, but before we get there, I want to take a moment just to remind us what the book of Acts is all about. Uh, because Stephen's speech that we saw last week, uh, he became the first Christian martyr, you'll, be, you'll remember. Um, it was a turning point in Acts that we came to last week in chapter 7. Uh, what is Luke, the author of Acts, trying to tell us as he, as he writes this book for us? What is it all about? Well, I think what we've already begun to see is that it's a description of the extraordinary events that turned the gospel and this small group, remember in Acts chapter 1, a group of 120 followers of Jesus, it turns this group of people into the worldwide, multinational, wildlife-like mission throughout the world. And that mission, uh, which saw the nations reached with the life-changing news about Jesus... Now, we've seen each week, haven't we, uh, that Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is the summary verse for the whole book. I think it's on the screen there for you. The risen Jesus says to this small band of followers, his apostles, that when the Holy Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then in chapter 2 of Acts, we saw the Holy Spirit comes and they started to speak of the mighty works of Jesus Christ. And you, as you continue to work through the, uh, Acts chapter 2 in verse 36, the Apostle Peter says to the crowds, you killed him, but God has made him both Lord and Christ. And then suddenly these 120 disciples were joined by 3,000 others who gave their lives to Jesus. A little further down in Acts chapter 2 in verse 42, we see this growing group of disciples devoting themselves to the Apostles' teaching and the prayers, etc., and then by verse 47 in chapter 2, we read, And the Lord added to their number daily. See, all kinds of people were being saved as the church kind of kicked off. Uh, but none of it was easy. There was opposition. Uh, there was sinfulness even within the ranks of the church. There was persecution from outside. But the gospel was growing in Jerusalem. And then last week, we saw uh, this incredibly powerful witness of Stephen. It ended up, of course, in him being stoned with rocks being thrown at him until he dies. And it begs the question, has this kind of promising start to Christianity come to an end? 
ever so quickly. Because as we come to the beginning of Acts chapter 8, it sure looks like that's what's going on here. Uh, let me, let's just pick it up at the beginning again of Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Let me read there for you. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then down in verse 3, But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It's hard to imagine what that would have been like, isn't it? But here is this serious threat to the future of the gospel, the future of Christianity. The authorities are stepping in to shut it down. It's actually hard to imagine people wanting to put their lives on the line to tell people about Jesus. And yet here is Luke's point. Uh, God's gospel can't be stopped. Uh, the whole mission of Jesus looks to be on the brink of failure. But have a look at the next verse, verse 4 there. Now those who were scattered because of persecution went about preaching the word. And so as we come to chapter 8 today, we, we need to see it as the application of chapter 7. As Stephen, remember, finishes his sermon in chapter 7, the angry mob is rushing at him to stone him. He says that he sees the heavens opened and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That is, he sees Jesus, the risen Jesus, now enthroned as Lord of all, as ruler over everything and everyone. See, God is not the possession of the Jews, only accessible in the temple, as they thought. He cannot be contained. All the blessings of God are found in Jesus. Life, hope, forgiveness of sins, relationship with God, only in Jesus. And so Stephen's speech is, is a turning point here. Uh, it, it acts as a, a kind of a final judgment on the nation of Israel for their hardness of heart and their rebellion against God before the nations are welcomed in as part of God's people. Now, up until now, all the Christians are in Jerusalem. But in chapter 8, notice all of that changes. Uh, the apostles who were uh, particularly commissioned by Jesus sent out with the gospel, they stayed in Jerusalem. While the crowds who were being scattered because of persecution, they're taking the gospel with them as they, as they flee. The gospel can't be stopped by persecution. It actually, it's actually the means of the gospel going out here. You know, I was listening to a, a sermon by William Taylor uh, from St. Helens in London on this particular passage, and he told a story about him going to a minister's conference in Nicaragua. Uh, while he was there, he met um, a whole bunch of ministers from South Nigeria, and, and one of the ministers from there arrived at the conference straight after three days in prison. And they, he was talking to these ones from southern Nigeria, talking about the persecution that was going on up in northern Nigeria. Christians were in serious danger up there, still are. Their properties were being confiscated or burned. Their farmland was being taken from them. Girls were being raped or abducted to be Muslim brides. And William asked them what they were going to do about it. And their response was that they were going to go up there to preach the gospel to them because it was the only thing that could save them. Now, we think those kind of things only happen in stories in the Bible, but it's happening in our world today. The gospel may be opposed, but it cannot be stopped. And it's ironic, isn't it, that Saul, this leader of the persecution in Jerusalem and the surrounds, is soon to become Paul, 
the apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. But he's already, notice, he's already being used by God to spread the gospel, even as God's enemy, as people are scattered and take the gospel with them. Kind of reminds us of the words of the patriarch Joseph in, in uh, Genesis chapter 50, sold into Egyptian slavery by his brothers, but raised up by God to eventually save his whole family. And we read his words in Genesis 15, where he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. See, God is sovereign. He even brings good out of evil. And the gospel cannot and will not be stopped, not by persecution, not even by racial hatred, as was the case with the Samaritans. Now let's just pick it up at verse 5 there in chapter 8. Now Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. And then down to verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Uh, now, I don't know if you know this, but the Samaritans actually still exist today. Uh, they, 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 they may be the smallest religious group that still exists in the world because there are evidently about, around about 860 Samaritans left in the world. They're only allowed to marry other Samaritans and so they... Uh, struggled, uh, or they struggle with genetic diseases like blindness and things like that. But where do they come from? Well, they actually come from the split between, if you know, the 12 tribes of Israel. The 10 northern tribes split off from the two southern tribes, which became known as Judah in the 8th century BC. And instead of the northern tribes remaining faithful to King David and his monarchy, they set up their own competing monarchy. Eventually, they were conquered by Assyria. Uh, they intermarried, uh, which was no good for a nation that was supposed to be totally separate and set apart for God. And so the Samaritans uh, became the half-caste Israelites. They still tried to keep the covenant of Moses, but they would reject the rest of the Old Testament. And so there was no love lost between the Samaritans and the Jews. Uh, they hated each other. Could a Samaritan be saved? A Jew would say no. So it's kind of remarkable what's happening here. Philip, a Jewish Christian, escaping persecution in Jerusalem, goes to Samaria to share the good news of Jesus with them. It's kind of like a Nigerian Christian, instead of hating his Muslim enemy, going to share the gospel with him so that he could be saved. And notice that they, the Samaritans, were embracing the Jewish Messiah. They're embracing Jesus. Jesus' commission in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, doesn't wait until the apostles are ready to include Samaria because Jesus' mission actually moves forward here through Philip. And so when the news filters back to the apostles in Jerusalem, they send Peter and John to check it out. Look at verse 14 there. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Uh, now, if I could just pause for a moment, unfortunately this glorious passage uh, that authenticates Jesus' lordship over every person uh, has actually led to some controversy. Uh, there, are, there are some who see two stages of Christianity in these few little verses here. Uh, Roman Catholics, for example, get their idea of confirmation from these verses. 
A person believes in Jesus and is baptised, but then they need the bishop, who is supposed to be in the line of the apostles, to come and lay their hands on them to confirm and give them the Holy Spirit. Uh, or Pentecostals, on the other hand, also see sta two stages, but they see it a little differently. Uh, the first stage is conversion. Uh, they may receive the Spirit, but they only have Jesus as Saviour, not as Lord. That is, they do not have the power of the Holy Spirit. The second stage is to receive the pouring out of the Spirit to empower you to witness, to speak in tongues, whatever it happens to be. It, it may even be called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But without this second blessing, you don't have the fullness of the Spirit. The question is, is this Samaritan experience the normal Christian experience or are these kind of unique events that we're reading here in the book of Acts? Because as you read through Acts and the rest of the New Testament, the normal experience is for someone to believe in Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit as one sage. We see it in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. When you repent and believe and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Or in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 48, where the Gentiles for the first time receive Jesus and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And so nowhere in the New Testament letters is it ever taught in a two-stage kind of process. The Samaritan event actually doesn't give us a pattern of the normal Christian experience. These are, these are Samaritans that are becoming Christians. The gospel is breaking out of Jerusalem. And the apostles come to verify this incredible work of the gospel, to authenticate it. And by receiving the Holy Spirit at the hands of the apostles, it demonstrated that both Jews and Samaritans are of the one family of Christ. They're included as part of God's people. Well, before we move to our last section, notice that Luke has highlighted one particular Samaritan person here. Uh, you might have noticed his name is Simon. Uh, he claims to be someone great there in verse 9. He does some pretty impressive magic and it earns him quite a following. Look at verse 10. Uh, they all, all paid attention to him, that is Simon, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. Now Simon himself comes to believe in Jesus, but it seems he does it for all the wrong reasons. Uh, he's a man accustomed to power. He likes to be in the limelight. And while Jesus tells us in the gospel that the greatest person in the kingdom of God is the one who serves, Simon just wants the power and prestige. He sees the apostles giving the spirit by the laying on of their hands and that's some action that he wants to be a part of. And so he offers them money. He wants to buy the power of God. But look at verse 20. But, when, but Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. You can't buy God. You can't manipulate God for your own ends. You can't use your money or anything else to put God in your debt. Only Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And the salvation that he offers to every single one of us is a gift. It's a gift to all those who will humbly repent and turn to him and accept his salvation. And if you have simply put your trust in Jesus, if you've trusted him as your saviour and your Lord, 
then you have Jesus dwelling within you by his spirit. It doesn't matter who you are or where you've come from. If you put your trust in Jesus, you belong fully to him. You're accepted completely. There's no barrier that the gospel cannot overcome. And that is true even when, one, when the one who might be considered... The, uh, so it's true even when the one who becomes a Christian is one who's considered the complete outsider. Now, in this case, as we get to the last part of the book of, of, the, of chapter 8 of Acts, it's an Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, let's pick it up at verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, uh, Philip's on the move again, uh, he says, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now the Ethiopian eunuch uh, is what we might call a castrated foreigner. Not a great name. Um, but Ethiopia, if you know it, uh, is, was on the edge of the known world at the time uh, from the upper reaches of the Nile near Sudan. Uh, he's, this guy is a high-ranking official in Queen Candace's court. Uh, he was, if you like, the Josh Frydenberg of Ethiopia. Uh, and he was in some way a God-fearer uh, because he was he has, he's travelled this extraordinary distance in possibly an ox-drawn chariot, maybe horses, I'm not sure, to worship God in the temple in Jerusalem, which was pretty much a waste of time because he was a eunuch. I mean, eunuchs had been castrated, their genitals had been removed so that they would concentrate on their job and not on the queen or her maidservants. And so as important as he was, he could never be admitted into the Jewish temple because he's damaged. And so he's travelled halfway around the world to worship God in the temple only to stand outside. He couldn't get into the temple in Jerusalem and yet he did get into the presence of God. Because as he's travelling home, notice, he's reading the Bible, the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah, you might know, wrote centuries before Jesus even came into the world. And he predicted what Jesus would do, and Jesus did it. And Luke tells us that he was reading from Isaiah chapter 53, which is probably one of the most magnificent chapters of the whole Old Testament. And he said this, this is, this is what he was reading. Uh, verse, what is it? Verse 32. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is, is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And so he's reading this and Philip comes up beside him as God places him there and he asks him whether he understands what he's reading. He says, how can I? And he asks Philip to explain what this passage is talking about and Philip explains to him about Jesus. That even though we are sinful people, our sin was laid on Jesus. That Jesus took our sin on himself willingly. That he voluntarily gave himself to be crucified like a lamb to the slaughter. Unjustly for our sin. And I take it he went on to say, but he's been risen from the dead. Vindicated. And he now offers forgiveness, acceptance, inclusion, peace, and real joy. 
And he offers it to anyone who repents and puts their trust in him. See, there's no barrier that he hasn't or cannot overcome. And so right there and then, as they pass by some water, he says, what's stopping me from being baptised? Of course, nothing. And so he's baptised into the name of Jesus right there and then. He's come into the presence of God, welcomed as a family member into Christ's eternal kingdom. Not at the temple, but on the side of the road. No more separation, no longer an outsider. See, God is always reaching out to people. I mean, maybe he's reaching out deliberately to you this morning. I don't know if you picked it up, but at every step along the way here, it was God who orchestrated the opportunity for the Ethiopian to hear and respond to the gospel. It was God who used the persecution of Christians in Jerusalem to get the gospel out to Samaria. And perhaps you're here today because God wants you to know that he loves you. That there's a place for you in his kingdom. That no matter who you are or where you're from or what you've done, Jesus died for you. Will you turn back to him? Because it'll be worth it more than you can imagine. I don't know if you saw the response of the eunuch or the response of the Samaritans when they understood that God was welcoming, welcoming them in. You see verse 39 there, the Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Or back in, chapter, and back in verse 8, as Jesus reaches out to the Samaritans, we read in verse 8, so there was much joy in that city. See, because Jesus is Lord of all, because he is at God's right hand, ruling over all creation for all eternity, it means that every blessing of God is found in him. So where to rejoice? Forgiveness in Christ. Rejoice. Acceptance through Christ. Rejoice. Peace with God. Rejoice. Hope for the future. Rejoice. Eternally loved. Rejoice. No need to fear. Rejoice. Every spiritual blessing now and every imaginable blessing for the future in Christ. It ought to fill us with joy. Now, I don't think we rejoice enough at all we have in Jesus, do you? It's easy to take it for granted, isn't it? Acts is showing us that there are no barriers to the gospel. But I, don't, I, I don't always think that we're convinced about that. I think we think there are barriers. There are people who won't listen. They won't be saved. People who the gospel won't break through into. I wonder where you think those places are. Or who are the people for you whom you think the gospel can't reach? Maybe you think it's just Muslim people will never accept Christ. Or maybe it's the gay and transgender lobby. They would never accept Christ. But maybe it's your work colleagues. Maybe it's your schoolmates. Maybe it's your family. Are you praying for those people or places that you feel the gospel cannot break into? Because everything that stopped people from worshipping God has been removed. Nothing can stop the power of the gospel changing lives. The book of Acts reminds us that the gospel is going to spread out across our world. It's already doing that. It's unstoppable. But I guess if I was asking you one more question is, are you willing to be like Philip? I mean, Philip is not a major player uh, in the Bible. We don't really know who he is or where he comes from, 
but he was a willing servant. He was willing to be an instrument in God's hands. Despite persecution, he was willing to share the gospel with anyone. See, how might you be an instrument in God's hands with the gospel? Are you willing to be? Well, I'm going to pray, and then I'm just going to stay for just a few moments. If you've got any particular questions you want to ask, uh, there'll be a chance to kind of ask uh, any questions that you might have from this morning's passage. But let me just begin by praying, and then we'll have a few moments to ask some questions. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you have gone to extraordinary lengths to welcome us in, that through the death of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, sent into the world, lived the perfect life, to die unjustly, willingly, on a cross, so that we might be forgiven and restored in relationship with you. We want to thank you for that wonderful privilege. Thank you that you would love us, that you would break down every barrier that we put up between us and you so that we might be restored in relationship with you. Father, thank you for loving us so dearly. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> if you uh, want to yell out a question, by all means do that and I will try and repeat it so that it can be heard by those who are on uh, Zoom this morning. Uh, yep. Are there any particular questions? I need to run and get my Bible. Rachma. Uh, I guess that's one of the reasons I'm standing here, mate, um, in the sense that I, I, I think that's a, I didn't, I didn't draw it out, I didn't say anything about it in the passage particularly this morning, but I think, oh, sorry, thank you, Roger. The question was, uh, he says in the passage that the, the uh, Ethiopian eunuch said, how can I understand this passage if, if I don't have anyone to guide me and tell me what it says, right? And does, how does that work out today? Um, and I think that reminds us that we have the word of God but in Ephesians uh, 4, it talks about how God gifts the church with pastors, teachers, evangelists, prophets, etc., to prepare God's people for works of service. And so there is a role within God's church for the, the words of God to be explained to the people of God and also to be explained to those who don't know the Lord Jesus. And so I think it's actually a helpful reminder to us. It's, it's not like oh, I gave that person... A, if, if it was just putting the Bible in people's hands then you'd go and put the Bible in as many people's hands as possible and just let it do its work, right? Now, God may save people that way because God's word is powerful and people read it and they might read that Jesus died for them and understand that truth. But the reality is God has also, as he's given us his word, he's also given us people who, as we know God's, which is, which, can I say, it's, it's one of the things that I'm supposed to do, right? But we have growth group leaders and we, we actually are supposed to um, speak God's word to one another. And so it actually means that we need to make sure that we're in God's word, that we're reading it, studying it, understanding it, so that we can help others who may not know, yet know as much as us, so that we can explain things to them. Because the Bible's like that. Uh, it is God's word that is powerful to transform people, but God uses people to communicate it to one another. And so uh, it's a really helpful reminder in there that it's not, just about, um, it's not just about doing good works, and hopefully they'll work out that you can become a Christian by doing good works, 
Um, and it's not just about putting a Bible in someone's hand and saying, yeah, you're right. Um, they need people to explain it. So, yeah. Thanks, mate. Good question. <laughs> yeah, go for it, Kurt. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that's, that's a fair point to make, absolutely. Because uh, you're right, he's reading from the Old Testament. It's prophecy, okay? And so, you know, the question he asks is, who's he talking about? He doesn't really say who he's talking about in there. Once you get to the New Testament, the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Uh, so absolutely true. Um, but I think it's both end. So I think, you know, that's a good point to bring out. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Don't not give Bibles people. That's, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, so it's sometimes what you don't say. Yeah, that's, that's important, and it is important to make that distinction. He's reading from the Old Testament prophecy. New Testament is the fulfillment of God's word in the Old Testament. So we do have that, but it's, I st- even the New Testament says God gifts the church with pastors, teachers, prayer, God's people, work for service. So we've got to keep those things, hold all those things together. Now, Henry, you had your hand in the air, mate. Uh, it's a good, good question, Henry. Let me just repeat it. Um, can I go back and explain uh, what it means to be filled with the Spirit? Because Stephen was one who was uh, said to be filled with the Spirit and went on to speak the Gospel. Um, can you be filled with the Spirit and not filled with the Spirit? Is that right? That... He was full of the Spirit, yeah. Um, yeah, it's good. And, like, I think one of the thing, first thing to say, I think, is that uh, it's quite clear in nearly all of the New Testament, that we receive the Spirit. So the Spirit convicts a person of sin. It's, he's involved in our very conversion, right? Because he convicts you of sin um, and brings us in faith. So Jesus, uh, you know, Peter says quite clearly that you, we put your faith, you repent, put your trust in Jesus, and you will receive the Spirit. Okay? It's, a, it's a, what happens at conversion. Every Christian is a Spirit-filled believer. Right? None of us, there's not people here who believe in Jesus, have their faith in him, who uh, don't yet have the Spirit and some who do have the Spirit so that some are more powerful than the others or whatever. Um, and one of the ways the Spirit worked was empower people to witness, which is exactly what Stephen was doing, right? And so, um, but there is something, it seems to be that there is something that is visibly demonstrable by um, someone who has become a Christian and been changed by God's Word through his Spirit. It actually changes what they live for, the way they think about life, the way they see life, the way they operate, okay? And so in one sense, there would be obvious, it would be obvious to those around that, that, that Stephen's life has been changed by God's spirit working in him. And I think, you know, Luke expresses that in words. Um, and so, you know, the other thing I would point out in, in Ephesians, um, the Apostle Paul says, be filled with the spirit. He's talking to Christians and he says, you need to be filled with the Spirit. 
And when he says that, I'm sorry, I haven't, um, it's, I think it's chapter, I'm going to have to, I'd have to look it up to see it again, but it's in, in, in Ephesians chapter 3 or 4, somewhere around there. He says, um, or maybe even chapter 5. Anyway, look at Ephesians. Um, is it 5? Chapter 5. He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? And it is a present continuous tense. It is a be being filled with the Holy Spirit. That is, the life of the Christian is to go on being filled with God's Spirit. And so we pray that God would continue to fill us with his Spirit so that we would live a life that is pleasing to him, boldly being willing to witness for him. And so um, I think there is evidence when someone actually is living in accordance with God's Spirit. You know, uh, Paul talks about keeping step with the Spirit. You're going to see that in the, the, in the godliness of life and the willingness to speak about Jesus, um, to confess his name, to live for him, to name him, to stand up for him. And so um, I think that's what it's explaining. Does that answer your question? Do you want to come back at me? Yes. I can tell Henry. I'm looking at you now. You don't have the face of an angel like Stephen did, but, um, but you love the Lord Jesus Christ. You seek to serve him in every kind of way that you can. You share your faith in the Lord Jesus with others and you sacrificially give of yourself. That is a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit. And you can't say Jesus is Lord unless you have the Holy Spirit. So all of those things says to me that you are, you're sitting here in church this morning. Now, anybody can sit in church. Being in church doesn't make you Christian, as they say, any more than being in a garage makes you a car, right? So uh, you're not a Christian because you're sitting in church, but you're here is, it, is one demonstration or example of you devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ who is your Lord and Saviour, whom you claim because the Spirit of God has enabled you to claim that, to trust in him. And so, yeah, I think that's all I need to say. Hopefully that's all right. Thanks, Henry. Yeah, Rachma or Zoe, share it around. I think one of the things that you've got to be aware when you read the book of Acts, for starters, is that we are, it is different to reading one of the letters where Paul is explaining and um, basically giving uh, commands and that kind of thing. A lot of what we read in Acts is narrative. And so we talk about things that are prescriptive and things that are descriptive. And we can't always um, say that because such and such did this, so must we do that, right? Because it's not actually telling you what to do, it's just telling you what happened in that instance. And so to try and draw prescription from something that is simply description can be difficult. Now, sometimes you can, so I don't want to rule that altogether, but you've got to be very careful when you do that, right? And so when it comes to baptism, I don't want to just take my understanding of baptism merely from what I read in the book of Acts. What I want to do is I want to go and see where does the rest of the New Testament speak about baptism and where is it prescribing things about baptism that helps me to understand what, how baptism was practiced, should be practiced, 
what instructions does it give it about practicing it? So um, just like I think the giving of the Holy Spirit in this situation is not a normal thing, I think it was particularly given. Uh, it was a recognition by the apostles authenticating that these Samaritans who they didn't think could be saved were actually part of the people of God. Um, that is a, a description of what happened, not a prescription of the way things operate. And so I think, um, I, there's, as far as I tell, there's nothing wrong with him being baptised in that space at that time. Um, and I, but before I make a decision about how, to, how we should you know, express it today, and I don't think we always express it the same way as they did back then, probably some freedom, but what does the New Testament, what does the rest of the New Testament tell me about it and where does it prescribe things at certain points? And so I want to be careful not to take a whole bunch of prescriptions, rules, must-dos out of Acts because Acts is not always telling you what you must do, it is telling you what happened in a, at a very unique time in the gospel going out for the first time. And so I think, yeah, is that... Okay. All right. Thank you. Tom. Uh, my, my question was also on baptism. Yep. Uh, so in both these stories today, um, baptism is associated with accepting, uh, receiving and believing the yep. word and following Jesus. Um, whereas in the Gospels, outside of the ministry of John the Baptist, it almost never is. In fact, it never is. Um, I think that's a good question. Uh, so why is there so much, why is there so much significance on baptism in the Book of Acts when you don't see hardly any of it in in the Gospels? Um, so Jesus does say that he didn't come to baptize, okay, but to preach the gospel, right? Um, and so it it it's, seems that, and look, there's probably somewhere, and it's not in my head right at the moment. Uh, when when the gospel goes out, there is a repentance and a turning back to God, which is, is parallel in a sense to the way that John the Baptist called people to repent and express that repentance by baptism. There's a public demonstration of their turning back to God in that space. And baptism was, was regularly seen as a, a moment of renewal, a moment of transform, where you actually um, turn from one thing and move to another. And so this is a, it's a public way of saying, I am putting my trust now, I'm turning away from the past life, I'm being washed clean and I'm, I'm, I'm turning to the Lord Jesus Christ and putting my lot in with him. And so uh, I think the difference is that when Jesus came, he wasn't coming to baptise people into his name, he was coming as the Messiah to declare the coming of the kingdom of God in his person and then he was going to die and rise for that to happen, uh, which he did. And then repentance and forgiveness of sins is going to be preached in his name from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, and people would be turned to him and put their faith in him, expressed in baptism. Um, and so that's why I think it's different in, in the Gospels to um, the, rest, the rest of the New Testament and Acts. Yeah. I better go. That's what I'm told. Yeah, I, I better go and. But thank you, sorry. And if there's other questions, speak to Kurt. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs>